Welcome to the Match 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Continuing in our Hope Against Hope series, this message looks at Daniel chapter 5, Hope in Honour. Today's preacher is Ron. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. 
He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone who wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the godlets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed and on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. G'day everyone, my name's Ron. It's great to be with you tonight, and I might just uh, lead us in prayer before we think a bit more about this passage. Will you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be together on a night like this, that we can meet together, that we can celebrate who you are, that we can do that in freedom. We thank you for the soup and bread that you've provided that fill our bellies. And for those who, who made it, we give you thanks for them. And we pray now as we look at your word that you by your Holy Spirit might speak to us, might convict us, might encourage us, uh, might help us as we seek to live for you and honour you as the king of the whole world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our behaviour reveals the stories in which we live. Let me give you an example of this. Some years ago, I took my daughter, who was then four, to uh, a movie. It seemed to me as a dad that this particular trip to the movies was going to be a win because uh, my daughter at that particular time had a fascination with horses. And uh, just out at the movies was a movie you may be familiar with called Spirit. And so I thought to myself, win, Dad. Take her along. She'll think this is fantastic. She'll think you're the best dad out. And, you know, it's only a couple of hours of your time. How good is this? So we went along to the movie and everything was going perfect, just as I expected it would, until the moment in the movie where it appears like one of the horses dies. At that point, our behaviour, my behaviour and my daughter's behaviour, revealed the story that we lived in. I was pretty chilled. I've got this. I know about kids' movies. I know they don't have sad endings. Kids' movies have happy endings, particularly animated kids' movies, right? So I'm chilled. This is going to be okay. My daughter, on the other hand, had not quite discovered that about stories. She was devastated destroyed. Her emotions were out of control. She was inconsolable, just bawling at what had happened in this particular movie. I mustered together every dad skill that I had. Maybe there weren't enough, but all that I had I mustered together. 
come on, it's alright, it'll be okay, just wait a moment, we'll see if, it, if the horse has really died. No, not good enough. She wasn't going to have a, a bar of it. After a little while, I realised that the story I needed to live in, I realised as I looked around and saw everyone staring at me, I realised the story I needed to live in was one outside the cinema. And so I took my daughter and we went outside. Our behaviour reveals what we believe. Our behaviour reveals the story that we live in. All through the book of Daniel, Daniel is asking us, God is asking us to see a bigger story than the one that we're tempted to see or the one we're drawn to see day after day. To see a bigger story. And not only to see that bigger story, but then to live in that bigger story. In Daniel chapter 5, we meet King Belshazzar and we see that the story that he lives in has uh, certain uh, behaviours that are attached to it and certain outcomes that come from that behaviour. Now King Belshazzar, we're told, is the son of King Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar is his father. And there's a couple of problems that we need to address. You know, if you were to talk to uh, a switched-on atheist about Daniel, they would tell you that there's a whole lot of problems with the book of Daniel. And we need to be alert to these things and know how uh, we can answer them. Not everyone has the same confidence in the Word of God that you and I might share. And so there's a couple of things I just want to mention about Belshazzar and Daniel chapter 5 before we move on. First, with this issue of uh, him being... Uh, father-son, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar being father-son, there actually isn't any evidence outside the Bible that Nebuchadnezzar had a son called Belshazzar. In fact, it seems like he's a couple of generations away from being a direct son. So how do we deal with this? Well, it was common in those times and is common even within the Bible and outside it to use the word father to not only refer to a biological relationship but to refer to a predecessor. So, for example, many of you will know and remember Steve Abbott. And so, in that sort of context, it would be like me saying, oh, yes, Steve is my father. I'm not saying he's my biological father. I'm just saying he's a predecessor of mine. Okay? So, that's, that's how that uh, word is used. Secondly, there's not a whole lot of evidence outside the Bible for Belshazzar at all. And so, some will say this guy didn't even really exist. Now, a couple of hundred years ago, some evidence was discovered that talked about Belshazzar. And it talks about him being the second in charge of the Babylonian Empire, which probably means that he became king every time his boss went away on a royal trip. So his boss would go on a big tour and say to Belshazzar, you look after the kingdom while I'm gone, which actually makes a whole lot of sense of why Belshazzar, when he's uh, making a promise of who's going to come and interpret the dream, says, I will make that person not second in charge, but third in charge. Because he can't give him his boss's job, and he's not giving him his job. He's giving his questions that are often brought up against Daniel. But I don't really want to major on that. It's not the thing that we need to major on. Instead, I want to go back to think about Belshazzar and the story that he chooses to live in. And what we learn from Belshazzar's behaviour is that his story is a small story. He lives big in it, 
But his story actually only extends to the end of his fingertips, to the edge of his nose. His story is all about him. Belshazzar lived big in a small story all about himself. And that's what happens at the start of chapter 5 where he gets a thousand of his mates together and throws this big party with their wives and concubines. Now we know from the way that the passage ends in verse 31 that the kingdom of the Medes and Persians is at the doorstep ready to take over. And while they're at the doorstep ready to take over the kingdom, this king throws a big party. What's that tell you about him? What sort of king, when they're under siege, throws a massive party? How responsible is that? Belshazzar is a king of great arrogance. Belshazzar is a king of great selfishness. Belshazzar, in the middle of the party, snaps his fingers. He goes, I want to take this party to another level. And so he snaps his fingers and he says, someone bring me those those goblets that we took from the Israelite temple when my father Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel. Someone go and get them. See, we learned about them earlier in Daniel that, that Nebuchadnezzar had, had indeed took with him articles out of the temple. But Nebuchadnezzar at least had some respect that those articles were holy, set apart. And so he stored them away. Not so Belshazzar. He says, bring them out. And when he brings them out, we discover that uh, verse 3 and 4 tell us what he does with them. They use them to drink from. They use them to get drunk from. But worse than that, they praise other gods. Gods who are indeed not gods at all. Now, I know this would never happen, but just imagine with me for a moment that uh, youth group on Friday night decided things were getting a bit boring and so they're like, hey, let's uh, mix it up a bit. Let's uh, get the Coke out and let's uh, share some Coke together. The liquid type I'm talking about, <laughs> just to be clear. And uh, so so they, they go, yeah, that's fine, but hey, let's not use the glasses and the mugs and stuff in the kitchen. i got a better idea. I know there's a communion cup somewhere around here. Let's go and find that. How fun would that be? And so they go, like I say, this would never happen, right? Just imagine. So they go, Jess is like, yes, this would never happen. And so they go and they find the communion cup and they bring it out and they fill it with Coke and they start sharing it around and and singing their songs. Now, some of you in here are probably going, yeah, that's not okay, I'm not not comfortable with that. Others of you are maybe going, maybe not a bad idea. But imagine if they don't stop there. They don't just use Coke, they go, hey, Coke's a bit boring now. Let's go and grab some grog. And let's fill this with grog and then let's like share it around and get drunk from this communion cup. Now are you starting to feel a bit offended? Is this okay? But what if they took it to another level? And so let's not only get drunk, but hey, now we're getting drunk using this communion cup. Let's praise other gods. It's outrageous, yes? But this is what Belshazzar does. He commits intentional, high-handed, deliberate sin against the Lord God. He shows no regard at all for the things that were set apart as holy to God. 
using them instead for profanity. Well, things are about to turn against him. As those in the party put their hands around these goblets, these holy goblets, and as they raise their hands to the gods who are no gods worshipping them, another hand appears. And when this hand appears, the mood of the party changes. Verse 6 tells us that the king's legs become weak and his knees knock as he sees this hand. An alternative translation is this. Some of you won't have any idea what this means, but I'll explain it. The joints of his loins were loosed. Who knows what loins are? A few of you, right? Loins are those, uh, is the area of our body between our upper legs and our ribs. That includes all of our bowels. And so if the joints of your bowels are loosed, that is not a good thing. That's going to be messy and smelly, right? And this is what happens to Belshazzar. The powerful Babylonian king becomes a man of weakness. His mocking ends up in ridicule. His story is undone. Since he would not humble himself, he is humbled. More, he's humiliated. He promises a great reward for anyone who can interpret uh, the, the writing on the wall, the third highest ranking. But none of his wise men can. And for those of you who have been here as we've been going through Daniel, that shouldn't surprise you because how many times have we seen that? The wise men brought in and unable to act. Well, we're going to come back to the interpretation in a moment, but I just want to hit pause for a moment. And I want us to just think about Belshazzar mocking God. Belshazzar played around with these holy goblets, these vessels that were meant to be holy, set apart. And it was kind of a sign of power for him. You know, look look how powerful I am. I don't even care about this guy because he's dead and I'm going to do whatever I want. He was living big in his small story that was all about him. He disdained whose those goblets were. But God is a holy God. And God cherishes and is jealous for his holiness. And so he acts in this really quite drastic way against Belshazzar. We see the problem, I think, with what Belshazzar did. We don't have too much problem going, yeah, that's, that's not okay to do what you did. And we can be offended at it. But I want to ask you, what offence do we feel at the moments in our lives that reveal that we have disdain toward God? That we don't treat his holy things the way that he wants them to be treated? See, it's easy for us, isn't it, to justify those things. A little bit of gossip here, a little bit of license over there, a little bit of dabbling in sexual immorality over here. Oh, but we're just... It's easy to justify. It's easy to justify walking past those who struggle most, saving our compassion for those who we think really deserve our compassion. It's easy to show disdain for God 
in our own behaviour. It's easy to not honour the things that God honours. It's easy to treat as unholy the things that God has made holy. It's easy to live big in a small story that's all about us. But God is a holy God and God will not be mocked. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. In a culture where mocking is so ingrained, we need to ensure that we do not mock God. That we do not treat, treat cheaply God's holiness. That we do not devalue the things that he has set apart as holy. The people that he has set apart as holy. We need to take warning from this story of Belshazzar and see the consequence of living in a story that's just all about you. God's grace is free, but it is not cheap. God's character is kind, but he is not a soft pushover. He is our holy God and he will not be mocked. Well, Daniel comes back into the room with Belshazzar. Belshazzar's called for him. And it's clear as Daniel talks to Belshazzar that he should have known better. He could have chosen to live in a different story. It's worth noting that some years have passed since we first met Daniel. He was about 20 then. He's now pushing 70. And uh, he comes into the room and in a stroke of brilliance, King Belshazzar calls him by his Hebrew name, Daniel which means God is my judge. Perhaps never a truer word spoken than when Daniel walks into the room after Belshazzar has showed such disdain for God and the writing has come on the wall and he says, Daniel, God is my judge. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is my judge. Daniel reminds Belshazzar that he has not humbled himself. Even though he knew about how God had interacted with Nebuchadnezzar, he had not humbled himself. Daniel summarises the situation in verse 23, where he says to Belshazzar, Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Belshazzar's story was all about him. He lived in a big story and he showed no regard for the God who held his life in his hand. He knew that there was a God in heaven but he failed to respect or show anything toward that God. He set himself up against God and so the hand of God comes with a message for him. 
Mene, mene, tekel parson. God has numbered your days. You have been found wanting and your kingdom will be handed over to the Medes and Persians. Before the finish time, the expected finish time of that particular party, Belshazzar is slain and the kingdom is handed over to Darius and the Medes and Persians. Now there's some issues with uh, Darius. It is simple and that is this. Babylon the Great is no more. The kingdom that once ruled with all power and might is gone and never again will it come to that height. And we know, those of us who have been going through the book of Daniel, we know that this is exactly what God had foretold through the dream that he gave Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the big statue? The head of gold that represented Babylon? That head's been decapitated. It is no more. And now the kingdom's been handed over to, to the, the body of silver, which we now know as the Medes and the Persians. But we also know from that vision that that kingdom will pass and another one will come and it will pass. And in fact, we know from that vision and Daniel knows from that vision that all other kingdoms that are made at the hands of humans, all human empires will come and they will go. But there is one kingdom that has been promised to come, a kingdom that won't pass away when God sets up his own kingdom. And we know that God has set up that kingdom. For God's hand has appeared at another time. This time God's hand doesn't appear on a, on a Babylonian wall, but appears on the sand in Israel. A woman caught in adultery, brought to Jesus for judgment. Jesus refusing to enter the trap that's being sent, but bends down and writes in the sand. The finger of God shifting the scenes. Jesus invites the woman into a bigger story. The men wanted to condemn and kill her for her sin. Jesus wanted her to know the story of grace that he was writing, the big story that he was writing. When it became clear to her that her accusers weren't able to condemn her, Jesus declared to her, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. What an incredible story Jesus writes in the sand, but he doesn't only write his story in the sand, for Jesus writes his story most clearly when his hand is attached to a Roman cross. And there, as the hand of God is attached to the Roman cross, Jesus writes the story for all time. And Paul summarizes that story in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he writes this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the story that God is writing. This is the story that God has written and continues to write. And it's a story that deals with the problem of human sin and rebellion, that does away with it once for all through those hands and through that person that offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross through Jesus. God invites us 
to live in the big story that he is writing. A story of forgiveness, a story of rescue. He invites us to live in a story where we're right with him, where we're right with each other and where we're right with the world around us. Jesus invites people himself into this story. In Matthew chapter 11 he says, Come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus recognised that people who lived when he lived are just like us. They try and, write, they try and make themselves big in a small story that's all about themselves. And Jesus recognised that that story is burdensome and wearisome because you've just got to keep making yourself bigger and bigger in that story. And so Jesus says, don't live in that story. I'm writing a new story. Come and live in my story because if you live in my story, my yoke is easier, my burden is light and you will find rest for your soul. Trying to write our own story trying to live big in a small story that's all about us, it's short-sighted and it's burdensome. Even if your story that you write about yourself lasts for your whole lifetime, what happens then? Even if your story lasts beyond you to maybe you pass it on, pass some wealth on to your kids, what happens then? It's short-sighted to live, in a small, uh, to live big in a small story. Instead, Jesus invites us to live small in his big story. Let me give you an example of someone who lives small in a big story, in God's big story. Her name is Lucy. You'll see a picture of her. I met her in Tonga. She's the one on the right, on my right in the photo. The other young lady is my daughter who's now by then recovered from the trauma of spirit, fortunately. If you were to go to Tonga, it would be hard to find Lucy. She's not making herself big. Instead, she's becoming small. Lucy, by Tongan standards, is relatively rich. She owns two houses in the capital of Tonga. But she's made a choice to live here, in this paddock, where there's long grass and insects that bite constantly. In a shanty house that you see behind us, 15 minutes drive out of town and close to the jail. She's voluntarily chosen to forgo running water, to forgo a flushing toilet and to forgo mains electricity. With her husband, she is seeking to live in a better kingdom, the kingdom of God, so that people will see the loving hand of God in her environment. Lucy and her husband visit prisoners who are at the prison just near them. They provide shelter for the prostitutes who have nowhere else to go and they care for those in that community who are outcasts because they're dependent on drug or alcohol or because they have issues of gender and sexuality that in a place like Tonga you can't even really talk about. But Lucy and her husband minister to them. 
Each Saturday, Lucy runs a market at her home. Her and a few of her friends collect all the produce and they put it out the front on the street and people come and take it. Lucy doesn't sell it. She gives it away to those who have need. Lucy's actions reveal that she is living in a story that's bigger than herself. And while we might think that she's doing something big, and in some ways she is, she's just a small part of that big story. You wouldn't even know about her except I told you about her just now. She's not doing it for fame. She's not doing it for glory. She's not doing it to make herself look good. She's doing it because she believes in a kingdom that's on about reconciliation, in a kingdom that's about redemption, in a kingdom that's about forgiveness. She believes that Jesus meant it when he said, pray that my kingdom will come and my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And she makes choices to live in that kingdom. We too easily fall for the trap of living big in a small story. And Jesus invites us to throw that burden away and instead to live small in his big story. Many of you here are at a critical junction in your life where you're thinking about the life before you, where you're making big decisions about jobs, careers, university, all those sorts of things. And some of you are incredibly well educated And some of you will be incredibly successful in your careers. Many of you, no doubt. Some of you will potentially reach the top of your career. And you will be tempted to live in the small story that's all about you. And those around you and the systems around you will encourage you to do that. Will you see your success, not as self-made, not simply because you studied hard and worked well and learnt, which you've done or will do, but will you see your success as God-given? Because if you see it as self-made, you cannot help but live big in a small story all about yourself because, hey, I've done this. Yet if you see it as God-given, which it is, you see yourself as a small part of God's big unfolding story. And will you then make decisions to keep living small in God's big story? See, that's an attitude. And it comes with a whole series of small decisions that we make. It might look similar sometimes in terms of what job you're doing. Some of you should be the best you can possibly be at your work. You should excel. You should go for it. Just don't get sold on the story that it's all about you. Lest you fall into Belshazzar's error. Rather, choose to keep living small. Choose to keep living for the kingdom of God. Choose to live small in God's big story.
which story are you living in? And don't just answer in your head because your behaviour will reveal the story in which you live. Live small in God's big story. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the story that you are writing, an amazing story. A story based on your grace, a story full of redemption. We thank you for it. And we ask that you might, by your spirit, strengthen each of us to live small in your big story. Thank you for the humility of Jesus. Thank you for the humility of others like Lucy. Help us to live humbly, that you might be honoured, that people might see how great you are. We thank you for how great you are, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Bend Hills Congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another, and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.